BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpoff, and I am thrilled to have with me today, once again, the one and only Dr. Jillian Isaac for another keyword episode. Now, today we're going to do local anesthetics, actually, as both of our keywords, because we'll have part one and part two. Now, listeners of the show may remember that episode 41 was on local anesthetics, and that was a kind of exhaustive review of all the details of local anesthetics that you would find in a book chapter. And so today is going to be actually a much uh, of a compliment to that because we're going to do a lot as we always do with keyword episodes of some great multiple choice questions and review of kind of key points that Dr. Isaac is so good at pointing out. So that should go well together. If you want, you can try listening to that first and then this, or you can listen to them whenever you would like. But for now, let me say welcome back, Jillian. Thank you. It's good to be back. All right, so how are we going to break it down? Okay, so if you look at the ABA content outline and their keywords, what they want you to know for the basic exam is what I call like the nuts and bolts, like the pharmacology, the physiology. So that includes the mechanism of action, uptake, comparing the drugs and chemical groups, so your amides versus your esters, and of the amides, which one are more protein-bound or more lipophilic, and then prolongation of action, which is a lot of like adjuvants, which we won't go into today. And then they want you to know all the side effects, and there are actually many. So uh, seizures, coda equina syndrome, transient neurological syndrome. Did I say that right? TNS is transient Mm -hmm. neurological syndrome. uh, Effects on the heart, allergies, preservatives and additives, methemoglobinemia, and then local anesthetic toxicity, which I will call LAST from now on. Um, And that includes the ASRA checklist for LAST and uh, lipid emulsion which we also call, what's the other term for that? Uh, Interlipid. Interlipid, thank you. And now, interestingly, if you flip to the advanced outline for ABA content for the advanced exam, they also put uh, the last on their local anesthetic toxicity, including the ASRA checklist and lipid emulsion, interlipid. So they really, really want you to know that topic because it's on the basic and the advanced. And I will say that it's really rare that you see the exact same verbiage on the basic outline and the advanced outline. So I would know that like in and out. So the way I'm going to break this down is like part one, we're going to do the nuts and bolts, which is probably the less interesting stuff, but the stuff you absolutely have to know, um, which is the more pharmacology and physiology. And if you want to know what they're testing, it's a little bit all over the place, but they are testing uh, two chlorprocaine onset 
and corporate metabolism that was tested in 2009 and 2010, how to calculate local anesthetic concentration, that's 2013, factors that influence local anesthetic onset, again in 2013, metabolism, 2018, and then placental transfer of local anesthetics. And that was tested in 2009, 2012, and then 2015. Now, when we get to the side effects, I think this is the topic that is actually um, tested uh, heavier. Is that the right way of saying it? More heavily tested is probably the yeah. side effects. So med hemoglobinemia in 2010. Side effects, it's just this generic term that open anesthesia had, which is 2017 and 2019. TNS is a big one, 2008, 2010, 2011, 2015. And then, of course, systemic toxicity, 2010, 2012, 16, and 19. So my guess is you'll get probably one or two like pharmacology, physiology questions, but the bulk of the questions that you see will revolve around the complications that you can get from using local anesthetics. So as always, I, um, I like to use bearish of my outline. And if you are a bearish reader, you'll know in the front of the chapter that they have like these bulleted, highlighted, these are what you absolutely know, so need to know. So I use those as my key points. And then I pull questions to supplement. So I'm going to combine two key points together and then do some questions. So the first key point is that local anesthetics provide anesthesia and analgesia by blocking the transmission of pain sensation along nerve fibers. And then the second key point is the key target of local anesthetic is the voltage-gated sodium channel. And the biting is intracellular and mediated by hydrophobic interactions. So these are some type of questions that you will see uh, regarding these two key points. So question the first one here, local anesthetics block nerve conduction by A, closing calcium channels, B, decreasing intracellular calcium concentration, C, decreasing potassium conductance, D, causing extrusion of intracellular potassium, E, inhibiting cellular influx of sodium. And, you know, as you pointed out, uh, these are kind of less uh, interesting in the sense that you just kind of have to know them, right? So, I mean, you either do or don't know this. You just mentioned it. Inhibiting the cellular influx of sodium is the right answer here. They're trying to confuse you, obviously, with bringing in different ions like potassium and calcium, which sure. do have a role in the full cycle of depolarization, repolarization, et cetera. But uh, what actually um, uh, nerve block is, nerves uh, conduction is actually blocked by inhibiting the sodium channels. Right. And it's also important to know, and I'm sure that your other podcast goes very much into the depth of the mechanism of action, but the local has to cross the phospholipid bilayer, and it has to be non-ionized to do that, and then it binds from the inside. And so you see those type of questions too. So here's another question. In normal tissue, which property of drugs has the greatest effect on the speed of onset of a local anesthetic? A, amide structure, B, degree of protein binding, C, intrinsic vasoconstrictor activity, D, PKA, E, potency. And these, I, I'd say probably these questions of, you know, what, what determines the potency or what determines the effect, the speed of onset or what determines the duration of action are always on always. tests. Yeah, guaranteed, exactly. Guaranteed. Uh, yeah. And so you just really, I think, need to memorize them. I mean, you can think these out. You can't explain why the answer here is PKA and you can't explain why PKA um, has the uh, largest effect on speed of onset. So you could, if you're a person who likes to think through all the mechanisms of why, you can do that. But it, for the purposes of purely getting the question right on the test, it's probably worth just memorizing that speed of onset is PKA. Yeah, well, and the way I think about it is the PKA is, is going to determine 
how much of your local is ionized and non-ionized. And because you have to cross the phospholipid bilayer, you need it to be non-ionized. And the more non-ionized you have, the bigger the concentration gradient, and that's going to kind of push uh, your local across. And so that's how I think through the PKA concept. And it's interesting because the vast majority, actually almost all of our local anesthetics have PKAs that are in the basic range. And so when you put it at physiological pH, only 10 to 15% of your drug is actually active. A, a lot of what you give doesn't even work because it's ionized at the onset. So. Mm. All right. So another one in the same kind of vein is which of the following is most responsible for the duration of action of local anesthetics? A, concentration, B, metabolism, C, molecular weight, C, tissue protein binding, E, volume injected. And here, this one you actually can think through because the answer is tissue protein binding. And I think that makes sense. And I just like the, the word tissue. Take away the word tissue. It's more like protein binding. But Yeah, protein binding. Yeah. yeah, they put tissue in there for some reason. But um but protein binding, right, if it binds locally, then it's going to have action there and it won't get kind of washed away is how I think about it. So that one may be a little easier to remember. And this is a very in the same categories. Which of the following characteristics of local anesthetics is associated with long duration of action? A, high degree of lipid solubility. B, high degree of protein binding. C, high molecular weight. D, high PKA. And E, presence of ester linkage. Right, so kind of asked a different way, though they left that word tissue out this time, but high degree right. of protein binding, as we just right. described. Yeah, and so lipid solubility, and we'll get to those questions, actually has to do with potency, because again, if it's like lipid soluble, it's going to cross the phospholipid bilayer quicker, so it'll be more potent, but longevity is like how long it's going to stick and stay on that, that protein, like the uh, receptor once it's bound to that sodium receptor. Right. Uh, and then the next question, and this is a comparison question, and it's good to know because sometimes they will compare the different anesthetics, is which local anesthetic has the longest elimination halftime? And unfortunately, you just have to know this, but it's A, bupivacaine, B, lidocaine, C, mepivacaine, D, ropivacaine. And I would imagine that most people would come down to bupivacaine versus ropivacaine here. So at least you have a 50-50 shot. <clears throat> but, <clears throat> excuse me, but as it turns out, Bupivacaine has the longest. <laughs> yeah, please. Are you no. <laughs> that was just clear in my throat. Yeah. So bupivacaine is going to be right. the longest. And it's also one of the most protein bound. So it, once it binds those sodium channels, it really sticks to it, which is why it's probably high, the most highly associated with toxicity. Because if it binds those sodium channels, especially the ones at the heart, it doesn't go away. It's like bound. It's really hard to compete it off. So those are the first key points. Now, moving on to key points three and four is the degree of nerve blockade depends on both drug concentration and volume, and that most clinically relevant agents contain a lipid-soluble benzene ring connected to an amide group and are categorized as either amino esters or amino amides based on their linkage. And we don't usually put the amino down. We usually just say esters or amides. They're two different classifications. So these are the type of questions you'll see regarding those key points is one, para-aminobenzoic acid is the metabolite of A, mepivacaine, B, ropivacaine, C, bupivacaine, and D, propane. Right. And so, you know, this actually is interesting. You might think, oh, I, this is something I just have to memorize, but you don't. What you have to recognize here is that one of these things is not like the others. It's a Sesame Street song. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so three of them are actually... Uh, amides and yep. one of them is an ester <clears throat> and the way you can remember this i mean what i always i still use yeah. is if it's got two eyes in it 
then it's an amid, which has an eye in it. And if it's only got one eye in it, then it's an ester, which has no eyes in it. Yeah. Um, and I and say so amide to drive that point home. Amide, right? yeah, exactly. Amide. Yeah. Right, so mepivacaine, ropivacaine, and bupivacaine all have two eyes in them, so they are amides, and that leaves procaine, which only has one eye, therefore is an ester, yeah. and so you, if you don't know anything else, you know it has to be the one that isn't like right. the other the ones. Other one, so, exactly, is the ester. Procaine. And we don't use that many esters. There's uh, procaine, chlorprocaine, benzocaine, which we don't use anymore because of methemoglobinemia, and then cocaine, which we don't really use, although it's very good, a very potent local anesthetic because of the uh, addiction potential. Yep. Um, so the next question is which local anesthetic undergoes the least hepatic clearance? Oh, sorry. I have to read the options. A, <laughs> B, bupivacaine, C, rocivacaine, and D, lidocaine. Yeah. And so, um, I will be honest that I'm not hundred percent sure about this. Uh, this is not something that I think about a lot or necessarily rem- remember. Well, I have this feeling in the back of my head that chlorprocaine, or I think it's also known as what, two, three chlor- chlorprocaine or something well, like that. Well, there's two different kinds. There's two chlorprocaine and three chlorprocaine or two different drugs. It's gotcha. Okay. So this is the, the going is, back to my days on labor yeah. delivery as a yeah, resident yeah, here. Yeah. Um, but, but so you know that that's, yeah are broken down by esterases, which we know are in the bloodstream. So if you see an ester, they are not clear by the liver at all. And again, it's very similar to the last question, which one of these is not like the others. Right. So whereas all the amides are eventually going to the bloodstream and cleared by the liver, the esters are really safe because they're going to be degraded by esterases. But at the same time, they're also very short acting. And that's one of the big reasons why. Yeah. And so that was ultimately right. I mean, if you can't, if you don't know, if you're like me and it's been too long since you've had to use these these medications, you look at them and you say, all right, well, I can tell. I mean, it's always good to do the thing of trying to identify, is there one that's an ester while the others are amides or vice versa? That's probably your best bet to make a good guess. Right. All right. And here's another question. Benzocaine has all of the following properties, except A, it is a weak alkali. B, it is used only topically. C, it is metabolized by an esterase in the blood. And D, it can promote formation of that hemoglobin. Yeah, so here um, we probably can use process of elimination. So this is, remember, actually, they're moving away. These are older questions, which is yeah. why we still have some of these except, all of the following except. This has been shown to be not a good testing technique, and they've taken these away. So you probably won't see ones that are phrased this way because it can be very confusing. But what we're looking for then is the one that it does that is not true. Right. So let's ask ourselves, is it used only topically? You may or may not know that, but you can think about benzocaine spray. It's certainly, you probably have never injected it, so that kind of makes sense. It's metabolized by an esterase, so we just talked about it's only got one eye, so it's an ester, so it is probably metabolized by an esterase, so that makes sense. And then as Jillian just mentioned, you may or may not know, but the reason it's not used much anymore is because of that potential to cause methemoglobinemia. So if we know B, C, and D are right, that leaves us A as the answer, which is not true. So that's how we arrive there. And its PKA is actually 3.5, which makes it very unique because most of the PKAs of locals are in the um, basic range and not the acidic range. And it's also known as hurricane spray. Um, right. it, it's very rarely referred to as benzocaine. I, I actually use it in residency to topicalize when we're doing awake fiber optics. I haven't seen it in at least 10 years. Yep. Because uh, we did have that at, at Columbia. We had someone use it and they were a little aggressive with the spraying and the patient development hemoglobinemia. Interesting. So key point five, potency is related to lipid solubility. In general, more potent agents or more lipid soluble. And this is like a guaranteed question, just like up above about the protein binding. 
So these are the type of questions you might see. Which of the following statements concerning the pharmacokinetics of local anesthetics is true? A, decreased molecular weight is associated with decreased incidence of allergic reactions. B, decreased protein binding is associated with decreased systemic toxicity. C, increased ionization is associated with increased placental transfer. D, increased lipid solubility is associated with faster onset. E, presence of an ester linkage is associated with increased duration of action. Yeah, and this is tricky because the... Lipid solubility is, like you mentioned before, actually directly related to potency, and the onset is related to the PKA. And so I think that um, they may be trying to get at that with D, um, but that's not actually how I'm used to seeing it framed. What do you think, Jillian? Because I, I yeah, think that... So, when- so the way I think about it, if it's more lipid soluble, it does usually have a faster onset of action because it crosses the possible bilayer quicker, but it is, but you always think about um, lipid solubility in terms of potency, uh, but there is, it is associated with faster onset. Um, and we talked about for E, the ester linkage, it's actually associated with a decreased duration of action because the ester are broken down by esterases so quickly. Um, right. Increased ionization, you're actually going to have less placental transfer, um, Decreased protein binding is associated with decreased systemic toxicity, not necessarily. I mean, you, you get toxic amounts in the bloodstream, you get toxic amounts. And then the molecular weight being associated with change in allergic reactions, that is not a known thing that I know of. Yeah, I think it's probably safe to say it's unlikely you'll see it this way. You'll probably see yeah, lipid see solubility like linked. So yeah, lipid solubility will be. Like the question you'll see is the primary yeah. determinant of local anesthetic potency is A, PKA, B, molecular weight, C, lipid solubility, D, protein binding. Yeah, exactly. So there's your lipid solubility. And I think that's what you'll see. I wouldn't, I would say actually from that prior question, I would not answer, um, at least if there is the choice between speed of onset and uh, potency. potency, Yeah, definitely. uh, When you're talking about lipid solubility, I would definitely go with potency. For sure. Uh, Okay. And then the key point six is clinical use of local anesthetics may be increased by addition of epinephrine, opioids, and alpha-2 adrenergic agonists. And the value of optimization of local anesthetics is debatable. So this is something we used to do in OB all the time. We used to add bicarb to alkalize to have more non-ionized local. So it will go across the phospholipid membrane quicker. But it's something we got away from. There are literally like a 1,000 studies on this. And 500 said they say it works, and 500 say it doesn't. So um, that's why they say that it's debatable. Um, but this is a question that you might see. So a 70... Jillian, let me just, before you get to the question, let me ask you, when you say clinical use of local anesthetics is increased, what do you mean? Oh, you know what? I got that right out of bearish. I copied it right out of bearish. So I'm not quite sure what they meant by that. Clinical use of local anesthetics may be increased. Maybe like the the duration or like... Right. That's like what a, I think is the duration like of action. May enrich. Clinical yeah. use of local anesthetics may be enriched. Yeah. That that makes sense. Or or duration may be increased. Yeah, exactly. Or like, yeah, I would just say enriched. Like these are um, adjuvants that help your blocks become better blocks. Yeah. So I think increased is not the right, like the best word. I think enriched is a better word. Okay. uh, Yeah. So a 70 kilogram patient experiences pain on incision of a thigh abscess. The area around the abscess has been infiltrated with 30 ml of 1% lidocaine in 1 to 200,000 epi. 
the local anesthetic was most likely ineffective because of A, acidosis at the site of the injection, B, epinephrine-induced limitation of drug diffusion, C, insufficient dose, D, low ionization of lidocaine, E, protein binding of lidocaine. Right. So this is kind of one of those things you learn, I think, in medical school, right, is this idea that local anesthetics don't work in in an abscess because of the acidosis. And when you take a local anesthetic with a PKA that is basic and you put it into an acidic environment, it pretty much all becomes ionized and useless because now it can't cross and do its job. And that's the reason why. And just to look quickly at those other options. So epinephrine would actually um, not limit the duration of action. It would uh, it would increase it. Insufficient dose, 30 ml is 1% lidocaine with epi is a pretty reasonable dose. Low ionization of lidocaine, it actually is the opposite, right? It would be highly ionized in that setting. And then protein binding, uh, again, is not um, would, would cause it to have a longer duration of action, not less. So I was just doing some quick math about what dose that is. So that's 300 milligrams of lidocaine. And in a 70 kilogram patient with epi, you can give up to seven milligrams per kilogram. So 490 milligrams. So you're getting close. I mean, you can give up to 490 milligrams. You've already given 300 milligrams. That's a pretty hefty amount of lidocaine. Right. right. All right. So key point seven is the rate of, of um, local anesthetic systemic absorption depends on the site of the injection the dose, the drug's intrinsic pharmacokinetic properties, and the addition of a vasoactive agent. And this is a question that I've seen come up every year is um, the type of block and how much absorption you have based on the site of injection. So obviously IV, you're going to have the most intravenous local with IV, and then it's intercostal and then caudal and then lumbar epidural and then brachial plexus and last is sub-Q. So you, I don't know if there's like cute mnemonic out there, but you have to know this order. It, this it always comes up. Comes every, up. Always. Yeah, exactly. So which of the following statements concerning intercostal nerve block for postoperative pain is true? A, block at the mid-axillary line provides analgesia for the anterior and lateral abdominal walls. B, blood levels of local anesthetic are higher than after an axillary block. C, intravascular injection is unlikely. D, loss of resistance assures proper needle placement. E, paravertebral spread is prevented by adding epinephrine to the local anesthetic solution. Right. And so as you said, this is where they really want you to know that order of priority or order of degree of absorption. And so blood levels of the local anesthetic are higher after this, which is an intercostal block, than after an axillary block, which is a brachial plexus block. And so it's often this. They're often testing you about whether you know that intercostal is the highest. Right. With a lot of distractors in there. So you need to know that order. Yeah. So the next question in a similar vein is the plasma concentration of equal doses of a local anesthetic is highest when the site of administration is A, axillary brachial plexus, B, caudal, C, intercostal, D, lumbar epidural, E, subcutaneous. Right. And again, intercostal, as we said. Exactly. Okay. So Uh, Now we're going to move on to part two, which are side effects of local anesthetic. So part two. All right. So part two is going to focus on like all the side effects and complications that you can get from using local anesthetics. So key point eight is that systemic toxicity from the clinical use of local anesthetics is an uncommon occurrence. Patients with cardiovascular collapse from bupivacaine, ropivacaine, and bupivacaine or levobupivacaine may be especially difficult to resuscitate. However, intravenous lipid infusion is an effective new therapy. And I love that Barish says it's new. And I was trying to define new in my head because I think we've had it for like 
15. I mean, since I've been arrested yeah. and yeah. I did it's not so new anymore. So I was like, what is new to find new, I guess new ish. But, um, so questions that you're going to see a, so this is the type of question you're going to see refractory cardiac arrest is most likely after the rapid unintentional IV injection of which of the following local anesthetics, a lidocaine, B bupivacaine, C ropivacaine, D chlorpocaine. Right. And so this is again, knowing that bupivacaine is the most dangerous. Yeah, and it's most dangerous because it's highly protein bound. And when it binds the uh, sodium channels like all over the body, including the heart, it's really hard to compete it off. And it's interesting, they learned this because it's an, we used to use 0.75% BUPI in OB. And there were a couple incidents where people accidentally injected IV instead of into the epidural. And that caused, like, obviously, local anesthetic toxicity. And that's how we learned about that. Mm. So, this is another type of question that you're going to see. The American Society of Regional Anesthesia Guidelines for the Treatment of Local Anesthetic Systemic Toxicity, or LAST, for cardiac arrhythmias include the use of intralipid and the avoidance of all of the following drugs, except A, vasopressin, B, beta blockers, C, calcium channel blockers, D, low-dose epinephrine, so doses equal or less than one microgram per kilogram. Yeah, and this is what they're getting at here. Two things. One, epi is still your go-to in a code, but also that interestingly, intra, uh, local anesthetic toxicity is the, is the indication, and this actually comes up quite a lot on tests. In fact, I had this on one of my um, maintenance of certification questions. You use a lower dose. It's not the one milligram at a time dose. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah, and I just want to take like one or two minutes to review the as the ASRA checklist for treatment of LAST because, like I said, that comes up on the basic and the advanced, and clearly this is something they want you to know, and you're going to have questions 100% based off of this checklist. So um, it's really important to remember that treatment of LAST is very different from other cardiac arrest scenarios, and you want to reduce the individual epi boluses to less than or equal to one microgram per kilogram. You want to avoid vasopressin, calcium channel blockers, beta blockers, or other local anesthetics, which makes sense. So if it happens, one, you stop injecting the local anesthetic. So if you're halfway through a block and someone goes into cardiopulmonary arrest, stop what you're doing. Obviously, you're going to get help and you're going to consider intralipid at the first sign of a serious last event. Call for a last rescue kit. Alert the nearest CPR team. Uh, you're going to go into airway management. You want to control the seizures. You want to use benzodiazepines. And you want to avoid large doses of propofol, especially in hemodynamically unstable patients. You want to treat hypertension and bradycardia if pulseless start CPR. And so for lipid emulsion, I don't know if they're going to ask doses, but I feel like it's fair game and it's pretty important to know. And I've seen them ask the doses for dantrolene and malignant hyperthermia. That's one of those things, if you need it, you really need it, you should know it. Um, so for someone, a patient that's 70 kilos or greater, you're gonna bolus 100 milliliters of intralipid, which is 20%, pretty much wide open. They say over two to three minutes. And then you're gonna run 200 to 250 ml over 10 to 15 minutes. So if someone is less than 70 kilos, and this is important in a child, it's 1.5 ml per kilogram over two to three minutes, and then 0.25 milliliter per kilogram per minute, and that's based on ideal body weight. So I would say if you're going to use local anesthetic in a child or in an adult patient that's very small, I personally in OB calculate out ahead of time what this would be, which I know is kind of extreme, but you never know. Um, so I know all going into it what I would need if I really needed it. And then obviously you want to continue monitoring at least four to six hours after a cardiovascular event and at least two hours after a limited 
CNS event, and then do not exceed 12 milliliter per kilogram of intralipid, which is also really important for small adults or child children. Okay, so another question along these lines is which of the following is the earliest sign of lidocaine toxicity from a high blood level? A, shivering, B, nystagmus, C, lightheadedness and dizziness, D, tonic-clonic seizures. So kind of something you have to know, but if you use lidocaine in the operating room as like a precursor to your propofol, you'll see this. If you push that 100 milligrams or so of lidocaine, you will have people who, before you actually get them off to sleep with the propofol, will tell you they feel lightheaded or dizzy. So that is something you see first, and that's one way to remember it. Have you seen local anesthetic toxicity, like in person? Have you treated it? Nope, I've never had. Well, I had to give intralipid once as a precaution because we found out someone's... um, someone's epidural had been connected to their IV and they had gotten a bunch of bupivacaine, but they were totally asymptomatic. We gave it as a precaution, but I've never seen anyone in the throes of it. So I've seen it twice and both were in OB using lidocaine through epidurals. And my guess is that they were either intravascular and we didn't know it or the catheter migrated and that happens sometimes, or it was in a big vascular plexus. So you had rapid uptake of lidocaine. And in both instances, both of them said actually their tongue and their lips were not. Mm. which they're not giving here, but it's like if they put periorbital numbness, that's another big one. And then you see the nystagmus and then it's like the seizure. um, And then it can progress into cardiovascular collapse. I was really fortunate that both times it didn't progress because lidocaine is a little bit more forgiving than bupivacaine. Um, But it is scary. Another question in the same vein, an 18 year old man has a seizure during placement of an interscaling brachial plexus block using 0.5% 0.5% bupivacaine. The anesthesiologist begins to hyperventilate the patient's lungs with 100% oxygen using an anesthesia bag and mask. The rational for the rationale for this therapy includes all of the following except, and again, it's an older question with an except question, but A, the therapy helps to prevent and treat hypoxia. B, hyperventilation decreases blood flow and delivery of local anesthetic to the brain. C, hyperventilation elevates the seizure threshold. D, hyperventilation induces alkalosis and converts local anesthetics to the ionized form, which is less likely to cross the cell membranes. Right. So we got, again, this isn't all the following except. So does it, does going to 100% oxygen hyperventilating treat hypoxia? Of course. Does hyperventilation decrease blood flow to the brain? Yes. Does hyperventilation elevate the seizure threshold? Again, you either know that or you don't, but it does. And then um, hyperventilation induces alkalosis, converting local anesthetics to the ionized form. So it does induce alkalosis, but that alkalosis should convert them to the unionized form. So that's incorrect. Right, exactly. And it actually can make it worse, (laughs) right? Because now you're going to have more. So basically what they're trying to tell you is if you're doing airway management in last, it's not necessarily beneficial to hyperventilate a patient because you're going to create more of the um, non-ionized form and that will cross the membrane and that's detrimental to what you're trying to do. So the next key point is that direct application of local anesthetics can result in changes consistent with neuronal injury. Lidocaine spinal anesthesia can cause TNS, which is transient neurologic syndrome, in 4 to 40% of patients depending on what study you read. So here are a couple questions about TNS, which come up year after year after year after year. And I think it's transient neurologic symptoms, right? Oh, not syndrome? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen it both ways, actually. Okay. Well, Um, okay. So so you should know. Oh, you're right. And actually, I think it's it's, in both of these questions, it's listed differently. So yeah, I've seen it said, I've seen it both ways. So syndrome and symptoms. Good. Um, Well, I guess, so this first question is saying that symptoms, so they're actually having symptoms 
of TNS. Does that make sense? Anyway, it's just semantics. Okay. Uh, so TNS after spinal anesthesia is associated with each of the following steps. A, lidocaine, B, lithotomy position, C, ambulatory anesthesia, D, concentration of local anesthetic injected. So again, all the following except, and this is just one of those things you got to kind of think about and know that lidocaine is where it's been, um, where it's been associated definitely in the lithotomy position because I think of it as kind of concentrating down in the, in the um, sacral area. Ambulatory anesthesia, again, often done in that, uh, in that um, lithotomy position. Uh, and then the concentration of local anesthetic injected, you would think it would, but it turns out it does not. Exactly. Uh, here's another one on TNS. So transient neurologic syndrome is most commonly seen after the spinal anesthetic injection of which local anesthetic? A, lidocaine, B, bupivacaine, C, prilocaine, D, tetracaine. Right. So as we said, it's really associated with lidocaine. Yeah. So we have an attending in our department, and I won't name names, but this attending has had to have some procedures and has had a spinal on several occasions. And this attending actually picked the cocktail that they wanted for their spinal. And one time they had it with lidocaine and that attending did experience TNS syndrome. Yeah. Um, so the symptoms include back pain that develops after the block resolves and irradiates to the buttocks and the legs. The pain is not associated with motor or sensory loss or EMG changes. It can be severe and it can require hospital admission of outpatients and it typically resolves within one to four days. It's more common in the lithotomy position, like we said, and actually less likely with pregnancy. Okay, so the next key point is that untoward reactions to local anesthetics are relatively common, but true immunological are, uh, reactions are rare. That should say reactions are rare. Um, basically, that means that you, it's not uncommon to have some side effect from a local anesthetic, but a true allergy is actually really, really rare. Um, so this is just kind of like a grab bag of uh, questions that include side effects, uh, untoward reactions from local anesthetics. So the first one, prilocaine is not recommended for obstetric regional anesthesia because it A, causes fetal methemoglobinemia, B, has a very short duration of action, C, is not metabolized by the newborn, D, is the most toxic of the amide local anesthetics, E, produces a longer motor block than sensory block. And this is really something you just have to know, but prilocaine is also associated with methemoglobinemia, so that's yeah. going to be your answer. Right. It's one of the esters, so you have to worry about prilocaine and benzocaine, the two you worry about for methemoglobinemia, and that's why we don't use prilocaine. We use chlorpropane. Uh, so the next question. Is prilocaine has- an ester? Because it's got two eyes in it. Oh, is it? You're right. It is an amide. Huh. That's interesting. So it's the one exception to that rule. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, so a patient has palpitations flushing, and lightheadedness after gingival injection of a local anesthetic. This reaction is most likely caused by A, epinephrine in the local anesthetic, B, local anesthetic allergy, C, paraaminobenzoic acid allergy, D, methylparaben reaction, E, vasovagal reaction. So when you think about palpitations and flushing, lightheadedness, um, especially in a highly vascularized area like the gingiva, um, it does, you want to think about uh, the, the epinephrine. So, I mean, I think that makes sense um, for us. You, if you're thinking about injecting into the into that area, you're probably not a, injecting a lot. So local anesthetic um, toxicity is, is probably not likely. Vasovagal reaction, again, possible, but probably not really likely. And right. certainly, um, uh, you know, again, you're talking about a relatively uncommon area for that. Uh, and then when you look at, like you just said, when you talk about actual allergies to these things, uh, it's very rare. So it's going to be much more common to have some epinephrine causing this than it is to have an actual allergy to the agent. Yeah. 
And I told my residents, we're just coming out of our July CA1 precepting. So it's when surgeons inject local, they always yell out injecting local. And I always ask with or without epi. And I ask my CA1s why I do that. And they're like, huh, interesting. And this is actually why, because it's not uncommon to have some vascular uptake and you see tachycardia and maybe some increased blood pressures when surgeons inject with epi. So I always want to know what's in their local when they're injecting. And then the other point I wanted to make with this question is that the thought with locals is that they're very, very true allergies to local anesthetics, but there are more allergies to the preservatives. And that's what the, um, or the paraaminobenzoic, that's one of the metabolites. So the PABA there. Um, so that's just one thing to remember. And if you're sending something for allergy testing, you have to test both the local and the metabolites of it. All right. Another question. The common element thought to be present in cases of Coda Aquinas syndrome after continuous spinal anesthesia is A, use of a microcatheter, B, maldistribution of local anesthetic, C, administration of lidocaine, D, addition of epinephrine. So again, Caudaquina syndrome after continuous spinal anesthesia um, is like we, we kind of talked about before with the idea of the TNS, that if you get it really concentrated in one area, like with um, the lithotomy position, you get, uh, I think of that as kind of a maldistribution, and that can, uh, we think, cause some toxicity. So uh, I would go with maldistribution here. Certainly, when we're talking about Caudaquina syndrome, um, administration of lidocaine is not uh, unlike with TNS, where it is associated here, it's not um, addition of, of epinephrine, again, not thought to be associated. And then the use of a microcatheter, uh, I believe actually was associated with TNS, but right. not with Codaquinas syndrome. Right. Yeah. And just to differentiate Codaquinas syndrome from TNS is Codaquinas syndrome, you have the back pain like TNS, but you actually have bilateral leg weakness, which you don't see in TNS. And then you actually get saddle anesthesia and then loss of bowel and bladder control. So you can differentiate the two that way. Uh, and again, like you said, it's thought to be due to pooling of local anesthetics and dependent areas of the spine within the subarachnoid space. Um, I put this question in here because methemoglobinemia is such a common distractor answer. Like you see it all the time, especially in conjunction with carboxyhemoglobinemia, and you see methemoglobinemia with some local anesthetics. So which of the following can cause a right word shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve? A, methemoglobinemia, B, carboxyhemoglobinemia, C, hypothermia, D, pregnancy. And again, this is one of those things of which is not like the other, right? So right. you may or hopefully do know that methemoglobinemia, carboxyhemoglobinemia, and hypothermia all cause left shifts of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. So even if you didn't know that pregnancy causes a right shift, um, you know, you could get the answer right. And then the last question for side effects is which of the following local anesthetics is inappropriately paired with a clinical application because of its properties or toxicity? A, tetracaine and topical anesthesia, B, bupivacaine and intravenous anesthesia, C, prilocaine and infiltrative anesthesia, D, chlorpropane and epidural anesthesia. Right. And as we've discussed, you should know that bupivacaine is never used intravenously because of its high uh, toxicity uh, when it does get intravenous. So that would be hopefully an easy answer. And the only intravenous anesthesia that I know of is actually like a beer block, right? Do you think, can you think of any other? Yeah. I mean, we, well, we run lidocaine drips, right? right, right, As like a supplement, uh, opioid sparing technique, but that's it. That and beer blocks. I agree. 
So yeah, and uh, so prilocaine you can use for to infiltrate. Chlorpurcaine we use all the time in OB for epidurals. And tetracaine, I was trying to remember what's in um, Emla. Is it tetracaine or another one? I don't know. Emla cream. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, Emla, yeah. All right, so that's all I have for local anesthetics. Awesome. Well, Jillian, this was super helpful. Thank you. Uh, why don't we uh, turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations? You've been, as all of us have been, stuck at home a lot. What are you doing to stay entertained? Oh, so I I am a book reader, so I've just been reading tons of books. But the one I'm reading right now, and it's so, so, so good, and I've actually read it before, it's called The Killer Angels. And you may have, I know you're a history teacher at some point. Did you specialize in like U.S. history or world history? or U.S. history, yeah, and I have read that book. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, so it's um, historical fiction uh, about the Battle of Gettysburg, but it's written from the perspective, like the generals and the majors and the lieutenants. And it kind of each chapter flips back and forth from the perspective of um, like General Lee and um, on the Confederate side and then Reynolds on the northern side and Buford on the northern side and then back to, I'm probably going to get the name wrong. I think it's Long Church, Long, Long Street. Long on Street, yeah. On the southern end. So it's it's a really great read. It's an easy read. It won a Pulitzer Prize. If you have any interest in the Civil War and the Battle of Gettysburg, it's phenomenal. And, you know, Gettysburg is actually really close to here. And uh, I think I might drag my boys. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'll make them yeah, it's a great recommendation. It's a really, really well, well-written book. And the um, other one, if you're interested yeah. in, I think, doing this podcast, put it back in my head. I read it a few years ago. It's so good. It's the... The Secret Double Life of William H. Halstead or the the Twisted Double Life of William H. Mm. Halstead. But it's about the surgeon from Hopkins Halstead, one of the four founders of Johns Hopkins, who was a brilliant surgeon, trained up in New York. And back then, Germany was like the peak of medical profession. So he went to Germany to learn uh, surgical technique. And they were using cocaine to do ophthalmologic surgery uh, in Germany. And so he got this idea, well, maybe I can use cocaine to do nerve blocks. So he was the first one to actually really experiment with nerve blocks, but he would inject cocaine into himself and his medical students to practice this. And he actually became like addicted to cocaine. But what he did on his like cocaine benders in terms of surgery was insane. He was the first one to do a cholecystectomy, which I think he did on his mother at home. First one, he pioneered the radical mastectomy. He pioneered thyroidectomy. First one to use gloves for surgery. First one to use catgut uh, sutures. So you could actually do end-to-end anastomoses of um, GI procedures of your mm-hmm. intestine. He, I mean, pioneered, like, just amazing. And he would go in the hospital, and they said he would operate, like, three days straight. And then he would just go and crash, and you couldn't find him for three days. And then back then, the way you got off cocaine was by – uh, prescribing morphine. So then he got addicted to morphine. It's a phenomenal read. It's so much about like the history of us medicine, the history of John Hopkins, the history of surgery, all in one book. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Great recommendations. Thank you. And we'll put uh, links to those in the show notes. Um, I'll go with a book too, or a series anyway. Um, I'm a big fantasy series fan and, uh, I love game of Thrones, the Tolkien books, the Lord of the Rings. Um, the uh, Brandon Sanderson books, et cetera. And I'm always looking for new ones. And I found a recommendation uh, for what's called the Powder Mage Trilogy by an author named Brian McClellan. And I am uh, now, it's three books, obviously a trilogy, and I'm about halfway through the third and it's fantastic. It's really, really well done, entertaining, um, light, you know, relatively light read if you're, uh, if you're looking for something like that. So that is my recommendation. All right, Jillian, thank you so much for coming on the show. 
Yep. And our next podcast, I'm going to focus, we're going to do thyroid for the basic and then thyroid for the advanced. Awesome. Looking forward to it. All right. Thanks, Dad. Bye. All right. That was fantastic. I, as always, learned a lot, and I hope you did too. Let us know what you thought. You can go to the website, acrac.com, or you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. Maybe you caught a mistake that we made you want to point out. Maybe you have something to add. We really appreciate when folks point that stuff out. You can also follow us on Twitter at ACRAC Podcast, and I'm at Jay Wolpaw. And, of course, you can also join the Facebook ACRAC group. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you are interested in supporting the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make a donation anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or by going to Venmo and looking up Jay Wolpaw. That's at J-W-O-L-P like Peter A-W. We really appreciate all the folks who have already made donations and become patrons. It really makes a big difference. We're very, very grateful. Thanks, as always, to Dr. Brian Park, our tech lead, to April Liu, who is our social media manager, and Kimmy Akash Cooley, Dr. Kimmy Akash Cooley, who is uh, our prior social media manager and still helps out with some of the outlines. You should check out some of the new outlines that Brian is doing and making uh, direct links so you can actually link from the outline directly to a part of the audio. It's very, very cool. Uh, also, big thanks, as always, to Dr. Dennis Quo, who composed the original ACRAC music, and you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Jillian Isaac, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. 